Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm Andy Metzger, reporter for Commonwealth Magazine, and I don't know about you, but I'm pretty curious about what changes might be in store for how Massachusetts pays for roads, sidewalks, subways, and all the other transportation investments. Here to discuss all that with me is Jay Kaufman, a Lexington Democrat who served in the Massachusetts House from 1995 until this past January. And uh, Kaufman was the House chairman of the Revenue Committee during the big tax debates over the past couple years. He is now the founding president of Beacon Leadership Collaborative. Jay, thank you for being here. Andy, thanks so much for having me. It's hard to think of anyone who is satisfied with how transportation works overall in Massachusetts right now, and that's helped build some momentum in the House and Senate to use taxes or some other new fee structure to pay for improvements. And those decisions will begin in the House. Now, uh, Jay, as someone who has been there, what do you think is on the minds of House leadership as they head into this debate? Well, let me set the stage for you, if I might. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I came back from a trip to Europe, and public transportation there, roads, bridges, uh, bike paths, all the the rest, are just incredible. Um, And then I came home, and in order to come to the State House, I parked at Alewife, or tried to park at Alewife. This is one of the the T station. Right, one of the T stations. I would guess that 25 to 30 percent of the spaces are roped off because the cement is falling uh, and it's just unsafe. Uh, that place is dark. The signage hasn't been repaired or hasn't been updated in years. It's not a welcoming place. And then you get on the T, which breaks down. And I really felt like I was in a third world country having come home uh, to Massachusetts. So we've got a big problem, a big, big problem. And when I think back on my 24 years in the State House, I have to admit some sense of being complicit because we took two major votes during my tenure. So the first vote um, that I have some misgivings about was the one to deal with financing the big dig. And that was in my freshman term. The second one in 2013 was called the Transportation Finance Bill, and I call it the alleged transportation, alleged finance bill. Uh, on both cases, in both cases, we didn't own up to uh, full cost accounting, and we didn't honestly confront how we were going to pay for the commitments we were supposedly making. And I regret both of those. Uh, in I I forgive myself somewhat for the first of those. I was in my first term, first year, actually, in office. Instinctively, I kind of knew we weren't really accounting for all the costs, and we certainly weren't uh, accounting for how we were going to pay for it. There were a bunch of gimmicks, including getting some money from Massport. But those those felt to me to be gimmicks. Uh, And even if the costs hadn't gone up, uh, what we built into that bill was not adequate to pay for the big dig. Now, I wasn't there. I wasn't here right. in 1995, but I was there in 2013. And what I recall, um, at least about the process of that bill, and I, I definitely want to hear about your misgivings about voting for it, but the process was that rather than the normal channel of going through committee and and then Ways and Means and then the House, then the Senate, uh, Speaker DeLeo and Senate President 
Therese Murray, who was the Senate president at the time, came together beforehand and presented the bill, or at least the broad outlines of what would be in the bill to members of the House and Senate. Was that a winning strategy for that top-level decision-making? Was that a good way to do it? In a word, no. Um, but the no takes a, a, at least an asterisk as well as an a comma and an explanation. I don't think that's the way democracy is designed. And uh, I'm much more of a bottoms-up than tops-down kind of person when it comes to thinking how we uh, deal with matters in our family and in our democracy. So I think you wind up with a richer process and a richer product if you allow for some the give and take that our founders had envisioned uh, as, as being the DNA uh, for our democracy. Uh, it's probably worth remembering that that hammering out of some kind of compromise between the two chamber heads came after the governor had proposed a tax plan that also hadn't been vetted at all. It was you know, presented full-blown out of the governor's office with no conversation. This was the $2 billion tax bill that then Governor Deval Patrick proposed to pay for transportation and education. That's and, right. And in, it, most of the money was coming from uh, an increase in the income tax and, and doing away with a lot of the, uh, the sales tax, the well, income tax and, deductions. And, and some of the tax breaks. Exactly. Right. So there were elements of that that I think were worthy of conversation. But the package was presented full-blown. And given the uh, sort of the modus operandi of Beacon Hill, it was DOA in and part why, because of the way it was presented is that? that way. Why was it DOA because the governor had spent so much time crafting it and delivering a fully finished product to the legislature to then start its work on it? Why, why was that not the way to do it? Again, conversation is better than confrontation, um, to my way of thinking. Um, and there was no conversation uh, that uh, predated the governor's presentation. So uh, I remember being in the House chamber when he delivered his proposal as part of his State of the State address and just watching the president, Senate president and speaker behind him. Um, and you could just see in their body language that it was like, where the hell did this just come from? Right. Uh, it, I, was, it produced a reaction that it didn't need to. Uh, and I do want to talk about the bill that passed and became law, the 2013 yes, bill. Yes, right. Sorry, I keep sort of, diverting no, that's you here. fine. That's fine. But it had three big elements. One was it increased the gas tax by three cents to 24 cents per gallon, tied it to inflation, although that was later uh, repealed by voters. It right. also increased tobacco taxes so that a pack of cigarettes cost a dollar more. And it used, it tried to uh, create a novel taxation system for certain computer services, although lawmakers um, themselves quickly repealed that provision. Right. But you, you voted for this on the House floor. It passed 97 to 55 so why, you, you regret it now, but why did you vote for it at the time? Let me say first something about the regret. Um, the three cents a gallon that was built into that was shy by at least 15 cents, maybe as much as 22 cents 
of the, all of the projections for our need. Uh, a number of studies, commissions, and the like had all concluded that we needed somewhere between 19 cents and 25 cents a gallon increase in the gas tax or the equivalent of that kind of revenue in order to be able to maintain our roads and bridges and uh, public transit, not to mention expand them in any kind of way. So that we were doing three cents um, struck me as just insane. Um, it was a guarantee that we were going to wind up with under-managed and under-maintained roads and bridges and public transit. So the crisis that we now are confronting is in part of our own making. Um, and it was very frustrating to me that, uh, again, there's some advantages to having conversations that only include the Senate President and the House Speaker because it's neater. But uh, I was chair of the Revenue Committee at the time and was not involved in any way in any conversations about revenue. Seems to me that would have been a reasonable thing to do. And had that happened, um, I would have suggested that we broaden the conversation and bring in some of the elements that Governor Patrick had originally suggested. We, we could have thought about the income tax. We could have thought about the sales tax. We could have thought about vehicle miles driven. There are a whole bunch of things we might have been able to think about that were not included in the package and then were then uh, off the table when it came time to actually deliberating on that. So I was very disappointed by the package as well as the process. Um, but then when it did come time to vote right. to engross this bill, you, you, you voted for it. So I wonder, and I, I know you had a reason why, but why was it that this bill that you said was insanely low in terms of the amount of money that it would raise? Why did you uh, vote for it? Um, very good question. And I ask myself that same question uh, often. And I give myself different answers um, at different times. So let me lay out all of those okay. uh, attempts yeah. to stumble my time. way to an answer. <laughs> and if I, if I sound like I'm stumbling to an answer, it's because I am. Um, I saw at the time no reasonable alternative. The vote was between that or nothing. And inevitably, every vote is, uh, uh, you have to ask yourself, but for this, what? And at the time, having failed to change the conversation to a healthier one, uh, the options before me were to vote for it or have nothing. So uh, is that a justification for it? In the real political world, I suppose so. Uh, when I look in the mirror, I say sometimes yes, sometimes no. The other uh, more difficult answer to your question is uh, I had a conversation directly with the speaker, with Bob DeLeo at the time. Certainly let him know how disappointed I was uh, with the bill, and certainly let him know about how disappointed I was with the process that led up to the bill. Um, and he made it very clear to me that my options were to uh, vote for it or not be part of any conversation going forward. Um, that's... Again, the way sort of real, the realities of the political norms of Beacon Hill at the time how uh, did included he, that if, if I, he said, if you can't vote for this, I can't have you as part of my team. 
Would that mean losing your chairmanship? Yes. Or? Okay. Very okay. specifically. Uh-huh. And um, I had requested the chairmanship of that committee and still felt strongly about having it very specifically to advance the fair share amendment to the Constitution. That was 10 years ago. It felt to me to be, and it still feels to me to be, the only way to begin to really fix our uh, revenue system so that it's both more sustainable and more equitable. And that's the three-cent surtax on the highest earners. That's right. That would create around $2 billion in that's right. new income tax That's right. Revenue. And that's the form it has now. It, at the time, 10 years ago, it had no form. It was just the broad notion that we needed to address uh, the prohibition in our Constitution of anything like a graduated income tax or different categories of taxation for people who have different means. So it, I knew that we had to do something. I didn't know what we had to do. I requested the chairmanship of the Revenue Committee in order to stumble my way through that debate and conversation and research. Um, and I would have had to give that up uh, had I voted no. So um, it was a very tough decision, I have to admit. Did, uh, he, did he put it to you in sort of the calm manner that you just described it to me? Did he just yeah. say, well, Oh, hey, I think we were completely calm. Is, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Whatever emotions we may have had, and uh-huh. there were certainly some, are pretty irrelevant. You know, I was presented with a black and white choice. Um, Do you think others were as well? Not that I'd ask you to speak for others, but did you get the sense that others had privately gone to the speaker with similar uh, concerns? I I can't honestly say that I know. I hope so, but I don't. I don't honestly know. And some of your other options um, might have been sponsoring an amendment that would do more of what you thought was necessary for transportation or giving an interview to the press to express what you thought would happen. Um, the Republicans who argued that the tax, uh, the taxes should be much lower, um, they did that sort of thing. They failed, by and large, to make any real changes during that debate, but but they were outspoken about it. Did you ever consider going public with your concerns? That's not a very effective strategy. Um, Yes, I did consider it, and I rejected it as uh, likely producing some kind of symbolic reaction, but not uh, efficacious. It wouldn't, wouldn't at the end of the day, make a difference at all, Uh, in part because... um, the conversation needed to be one amongst legislators and going to the press, which I certainly had my experience doing, uh, is not regarded as a winning strategy. It's regarded as, um, well, at very least unprofessional and maybe unethical, but in any event unprofessional and unproductive, and it's resented. So that's the reality. Uh, which I learned the hard way. I have, I have wounds to prove it. <laughs> and by going to the press, you mean going to the press to express your dissatisfaction with what's happening? Because, of course, state lawmakers talk to reporters, most of them talk to reporters frequently about what's happening. But So you're talking specifically about airing complaints in the press, right? As a member of the Speaker's leadership team. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. 
uh, it it, it was clear to me that that's not a winning strategy. Would you say that's part of Speaker DeLeo's style or his leadership strategy that that discourages that approach, or is it just the nature I, I think of the it, House? It predates Speaker DeLeo. Um, I think there has been a, a really a tops-down culture uh, in the Massachusetts House ever since Tom Finneran was the Speaker, and that goes back you know, more than two decades now. Uh, and I think, to some extent, well, there are probably fewer than a dozen or so members of the House still serving now who predate Tom Finneran's speakership. So most of the members of the House don't really know how a speaker can preside as the first among equals. So they very often come in as freshmen and are filled with notions of a democratic institution, democratic lowercase d, uh, and very quickly realize that it's really more tops down. And I think that's disappointing. I think that's sad. I think it has made uh, the, the speakers, including Speaker DeLeo, who I like a lot, I think he's a wonderful person, I think it's made him a lot less effective than he could be because I think he'd be um, happier and uh, produce a better work product if his circle of friends was broader than it is. And you have experience in the House, and oftentimes this same sort of criticism is made maybe by people who don't have the same experience as you do. But I find the Senate can sort of feel like it's been left off the hook on this. Um, Of course, Stan Rosenberg, when he was president, presided in a very different manner. But would you say that um, the Senate over the years when you were in the legislature also had that sort of top-down approach? Um, I'm looking at the Senate from the other uh, from the other side of the building, so my view could easily be uh, inaccurate and unfair. But from where I sat, at least, it looked like at least recently, uh, under uh, Senate President Spilka and before that under Senate President Rosenberg, and under Senate President Harriet Chandler in between, uh, it looked like. Uh, when the senators went into caucus, there actually was an honest and a full-blown conversation about things. And yes, at the end of the day, they wanted to come out in a united fashion. That's not inappropriate. But it felt to me like there was a healthier airing of issues and differences uh, than I was experiencing. But that would be in caucus, which is, it's it's maybe healthy for the senators themselves, but um, not viewable by the public. Um, that is a problem. And uh, yes. So Speaker DeLeo, who we've talked about um, a bit here, he's not he's not a king. He doesn't enjoy a lifetime appointment. In fact, he's up for re-election in the House um, every two years. And so, therefore, isn't the House Complicit. membership? Yeah, the Democrats. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, um, and I'm I was complicit. Um, to be perfectly clear about that. Uh, part of what has not happened um, is, well, let me put it this way. Uh, I think uh, in a healthy 
organization of any sort, public or private, uh, there are opportunities for growth, uh, encouragement of different uh, points of view, um, the kind of give and take that we haven't seen all that much in the Massachusetts House, and again, I can't speak for the Senate, but in the Massachusetts House, um, for quite some time. So part of what has not evolved is other people stepping up and assuming larger and larger roles and larger and larger responsibility and providing the kind of creative tension that exists when there are spokespeople for different points of view. So given that the culture has been tops down and that there hasn't been a nurturing of new leadership, uh, at the end of the day, you can't wind up with a new speaker without a candidate. And nobody has emerged. At least. Not yet, anyway. Sure. Um, and, uh, and by the way, I just, uh, in the way of mea culpas, by the way, I want to also add that this also predates your time observing Beacon Hill, but some years ago, while uh, Tom Finneran was the speaker, 17 of us cast what we regarded to some extent and what certainly at the end of the day was a rather symbolic vote uh, in opposition uh, and nominated and voted for Byron Rushing as the speaker. That was the last time that I remember doing anything quite that brazen. And I look back on that as having been an interesting moment, but not part of a strategy or a tactical move. It was more acting out than acting. And um, I think not only did that guarantee that the 17 of us were going to be completely marginalized for the decade after that, but I think it sent a signal that this is not a very smart way to go, you know, to go to get ahead and to get something done. So there hasn't been the kind of experimentation um, that it takes to reestablish uh, the kind of dynamic amongst the membership and between the members and the the leadership that I think would make for a healthier democracy, and that that leaves me rather sad. And. Uh you have, in your vote for Byron Rushing for Speaker, had sort of a maverick, it was sort of a maverick vote that you had a while back. But do you think that Speaker DeLeo, if he listens to this or someone else, do you think people would be surprised by what you have to say about your criticisms, not just of the 2013 tax bill, but about how the, um, how the House is managed? Surprised? No. Okay. And by the way, when was that conversation where, if you remember, like in the process where you told Speaker DeLeo that you don't like the bill and he essentially said either keep your chairmanship or vote against the bill? That was the morning that we took the vote. Okay. That day. Okay. The day of, of the floor vote. I see. Yes. Um, and of course, now um, the membership is looking towards, I do want to get back, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you've had to say about um, the House dynamics. I do want to touch a little bit on what what to look forward to. Where we go to. from here. Exactly, because right. sure. the debate, depending on who you talk to, is either underway in some respects, although there hasn't been a vote yet in, in the House. Um, 
what advice would you have for maybe maybe those who share your perspective on what should be done? What sort of strategic advice do you have for them on on how to get that sort of thing done? Well, I think the first thing um, is full cost accounting. We better you know make sure that the membership of the House and Senate and the public understands what it's going to cost. Uh, to make up for the lost time on, on repairs uh, and what it would take in, on an annual basis to maintain the roads and bridges and public transit, if not expand them. And I think we clearly need to do some expansion. So let's be honest about how much it's going to cost. Let's be honest about the fact that you can't do this strictly as a use tax, whether it's gas tax or anything like that, because all of us benefit from good roads, bridges, and public transit. Um, and so we all have to be part of the solution. So I think a package that includes some broad-based taxes or broad-based revenue uh, to complement any use taxes um, is, is the right formula. Uh, that's not a detailed formula. However you break that down is you know, worthy of debate. But I think some measure of revenue from something like an income tax is fine, I think. Uh, some use tax, whether it's specifically a gas tax or I, I have a preference for vehicle miles driven. It seems to me that every year we get our cars inspected, there's a public record of how many miles we've driven. We can simply attach a per mile fee to that, send in a check um, based on what's already a public record, how, much, how many miles you've driven, and that gives some revenue. Um, what you need to do in both of those cases, that is both the vehicle miles driven and a gas tax, is try to offset the regressivity. Some people who live in communities where there is no public transportation have to drive more than those of us who live with the T. So you want to not be unfair to those people. Uh, some people can't afford a new, more fuel-efficient car than others. Do you want to penalize them by having a disproportionate amount of the revenue coming from a gas tax that is um, going to be regressive? No, you don't. You want to try to offset that. But there are ways of doing that. So a, a broad-based uh, tax or, source or sources of revenue, some user taxes that are corrected for uh, the disproportional impact on people with, with low income or in areas that don't have access to an alternative. That begins to be the conversation that I think we need to be having, and I hope that's the conversation that's happening. Since I'm no longer in the middle of it, I don't know. Now, in terms of, I, I, I definitely think from what I've heard from especially Chairman Strauss, who's chairman of the Transportation Committee on the House side, uh, is the gas tax seems like it's very much a part of the conversation, but the income tax seems pretty touchy because for over a decade, almost two decades, or two decades ago, there was this vote by voters across Massachusetts to lower the income tax to 5%. We're almost there. It strikes me that that might be an even heavier lift politically to try to then turn around and raise the income tax. Do you, I mean, do you, 
Do you think that that can I, survive that sort of political challenge? I go to the gym almost every day, and I'm a big fan of getting ready for heavy lifting. Um, I think a good conversation, an honest conversation, and a direct conversation with the public about our needs, about our tax system, its strengths and weaknesses, I think that could survive. I could do better than survive the political test. I think it could revive a sense of civic engagement. I think we've been, we've not served the cause or democracy in general by ducking those conversations. And then we're about to wrap up, but just before we do, uh, your your big proposal, the one that you wanted to hang on to uh, the revenue chairmanship for, what you called the fair share tax, other people called the millionaire's tax, they would tax incomes over a million dollars. It was dealt a major setback last year by the Supreme Judicial Court, which said voters can't vote on on that version of it, or at least through the, the process that it had been in. And now, as it stands today, it's it's made some progress. Supporters of it should be happy. It's everything you've needed to have achieved at this point has been achieved, but it's still a years-long process to amend the Constitution in the way that you'd need to to, uh, to install one of these um, progressive income tax systems. What do you think will happen with that over the next four or five years? Um, I think it will be on the ballot in November of 2022. Uh, I'm disappointed that it wasn't on the ballot in November of 2018. Um, but as you know, uh, the SJC threw it off the ballot on what arguably is a technicality, although an important technicality. Um, it was a process concern, it was because, not a Because it arrived at concern. the ballot or was destined to arrive at the ballot as an initiative petition, uh, it was subject to other constitutional tests, um, and it failed those tests. Uh, this... Uh, it is going forward now as an initiative of the legislature. Um, none of the challenges that uh, the forces that were opposed to this tax were able to take to the Supreme Judicial Course are in place. So it will, there will not be a constitutional test on this, and it'll be on the ballot in 2022. All the indications are is that it will pass comfortably, and one measure of that is uh, when we... The Constitutional Convention last voted on that, and again, it was the initiative petition we were considering at the time. It passed with 70% of the vote of House and Senate members. This time, when it was, again, before a Constitutional Convention, it passed with 80% of the vote. So support amongst legislators, who arguably could be a little bit gun-shy about taxes, um, has gone from a healthy 70% to an even healthier 80%. And all the indications are that voters would approve it overwhelmingly. So I look forward to that in 2022. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much for chatting with me on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me again. 